Amen. Go ahead and uh, take out your Bibles and open up to Genesis chapter 1. If you do not have a Bible, we have some in the lobby that you can grab. And if you don't, uh, if you don't own a Bible, then please feel free to grab one of those and take it and keep it for yourself. We just finished our series in the book of Mark last week. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to be in a new series uh, in the book of Genesis. And uh, the series is titled Beginnings, a study of Genesis 1 through 3. Uh, because when you look at the book of Genesis as a whole, it really is a book about the beginnings of the people of Israel. But then if you shrink it down to the first 11 chapters, uh, it's, it chronicles the beginnings of mankind. And then if you shrink it down even more to the first three chapters, it details the beginnings of all things. And... There is not a book of the Bible that does not in some way, shape, or form uh, point back to the first three chapters of Genesis. In fact, if we didn't have the first three chapters of Genesis, we would not have a Bible because the entire scriptures, all of the Bible, is built on Genesis 1 through 3. Uh, and really, the, the first three chapters of the book of Genesis serve to answer five questions for us. Who is God? Where did we come from? Why are we here? What happened to make everything the way that it is? And what is God doing in response? The first three chapters of Genesis answer those five questions. And it is from there that all the rest of the scriptures built. And so it only makes sense that we would uh, spend some time in these first three chapters, to, to be able to wrap our minds around and have a greater understanding of uh, these foundational truths uh, for all that we believe. Uh, but, but before we get started, I would like to, to go before the Lord and pray, and then we will get into our text this morning. Almighty God, we are so grateful for who you are. And truly, Lord, apart from who you are, we uh, we have no hope because all that we hope in is based in who and what you are as our God. And so we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. And we ask, Lord, that you would be moving in and among us, that your word would be planted deep in our hearts. God, let the words that, uh, that come out of my mouth this morning not be my own words, but let them be the words you want spoken for the glory of your name because that is why we are here is to honor you, to worship you, and to be changed by you. And in the, in the same way that we pray for our own congregation, we pray for Pastor Dave Bruscus and North Church and, and the congregation there, that you would be moving in and among them, that they would grow in a greater understanding of who you are, uh, and that you would build up their love for you and, uh, and their faith in you as a result of the worship that takes place there this morning. And so now as we turn to your word, God, Please humble our hearts, open our ears, and help us, help us, Lord, to hear the word that, uh, that only you can speak. Amen. So the title of this morning's message is, In the Beginning, God. And I took that right out of the passage that we're going to be in this morning from Genesis 1, uh, verse 1. And so let's go ahead and take a look at that this morning. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Now we have such a tendency because we have heard that so much to just gloss right over that. Just like it's just a mere statement of fact. Okay, God made everything and let's move on. But what we really need to come to grips with is the fact that that is quite possibly the most loaded statement in all of the scriptures because of what is communicated in that one sentence. So if we just look at this verse and just start walking through it, right? In the beginning, before anything existed, there was nothing. This is the very beginning point of all history. In the beginning, there was was nothing yet. And we see that in the beginning, God was there already. In the beginning, God. And you see, Moses is the one who wrote the book of Genesis. And he's coming right out, right out of the gate saying, in the beginning, God was there. And it's the God that this book talks about. This is an emphatic claim that, that the God of the Bible, the God that is spoken of throughout this book, is the God who created everything. It wasn't multiple gods. It wasn't uh, God and, and some other people with some help. No, it was the God of the Bible was there and he was the one who created. So we see in the beginning God created. Now, we have to understand what that word created really means. See, that, that is the Hebrew word barach, which is a word that is only used for God. And it, it carries with it the idea of bringing into existence the things that you're making. See, if I were to make something, this word, this Hebrew word, barah, would not be used for, for what I created because let's say I made a chair. Well, the wood that I used to make the chair already existed. So this word could not have been used for me. It's only something that God can do because it's the idea that he brought these things into existence. And then he finishes by saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which is a way of saying everything. Everything that exists on earth, in the sky, in space, everything that exists in the universe, God created. And so before we get into the specifics of the message, we need to make something very, very clear. You either believe this or you don't. You either believe that God created the heavens and the earth or you do not. You either accept that it is true or you reject it as false. I don't get to play on some middle ground. I either believe that God is the creator of all things and that he created how the Bible says he created or he did not. We at Faith Church believe that God created the heavens and the earth exactly as it says here in Genesis 1.1. But if you reject that, and if you say, I don't believe that is true, then a couple problems arise that you have to be willing to accept. If I reject that God is the creator of all things, then I must, I must reject that he's in control of all things. Because if God didn't create all things, that means that everything came into existence through a means that are not completely within his control because he is the not the one who created it. Therefore, he's not in control of creation in general. But ultimately, and this is, this is the more troubling piece, if I reject that God is the creator of all things, 
then I must, I must reject the rest of scripture. If I don't believe that God is creator, I must throw out the rest of the Bible. And here's why. The kings of Israel, the prophets of Israel, the apostles in the New Testament, and Jesus himself all affirm that God created the heavens and the earth and that God literally created the heavens and the earth. Jesus himself points back to creation as the basis for the very things he was teaching in that moment. And you see, if God did not create, that means Jesus was wrong, which means he was not who he said he was. And he is not our Messiah. He is not our king because he was a liar. You see, for me to reject that God is the creator of all things, I have to come to grips with quite a few other things that I then must reject. Now, assuming that we all accept that God is the creator of all things as we believe here at Faith Church, then we can move on. Um, now, you remember the five questions that I said Genesis 1 through 3 answers. Right? Who is God? Where did we come from? Why are we here? What happened to make things the way that they are now? And what is God doing in response? And this morning, we are just going to focus on that first question. Who is God? So that brings us to the main idea of this morning's message, and that is this, that the God of creation is the God of the Bible. And the God of the Bible is the God of hope. And let me, let me read that again. The God of creation is the God of the Bible, and the God of the Bible is the God of hope. Now, why should we spend an entire sermon just talking about what we can know about God from one verse in the Bible? And there are a few reasons for that. First of all, all that we do is in response to who we believe God is. And you can say that of every person. Every person on earth lives their life according to what they think God is and what they think God isn't. And so in order for me to live my life rightly, then I must have a right understanding of who God is. And if we, I mean, if we just look at this banner right here that has our core values on it, worship, discipleship, mission. I can't rightly worship God if I don't rightly know who God is. We just had a slide up during... Uh, during the, the, the worship set where Randy was reading that, uh, those two screens and it said that we wanted to worship God in spirit and truth. Well, I can't worship God in truth if I don't know the truth of who he is. Additionally, if being a disciple is being who God intended for me to be and me following Jesus, I can't rightly follow him if I don't know who he is and what he expects. And lastly, I can't be on mission for God if I don't know why I should be obedient to him. If I don't know the greatness of who God is, then why on earth would I want to be on mission for him? See, if we want to live lives that are honoring to God, then we have to have a right understanding of who God is. And C.S. Lewis has this great illustration where he talks about why we need to have a right understanding of God from the get-go. That we, we shouldn't seek to know anything else without first knowing who God is and what he's like. And the illustration he gives is that you, you picture a house. You can build the house as tall as you want it, but if the foundation is not perfect, 
as you build that house, that error in the foundation is going to become more and more obvious. Anyone who's ever built a wall, uh, if you, you know that if you don't have that bottom level perfect, then as you build with each level of that wall, that imperfection is going to grow and grow and grow. And it's the same with our understanding of God. If my understanding of God is flawed at the most basic level, then as I build on that in my understanding of Scripture and, and as I build my theology of, of who God is and what my life should look like, then those errors in who I understand God to be are going to be very obvious in my life. And my life is going to look very different. You think of a, if you think of two lines, and at their starting point, they could seem to be right on top of each other going the same direction. But if, if one of those lines is even one degree off, the further you go down that line, the further they get from each other. And that's why it's so important for us to have a right understanding of who God is. And if we can make this a little more personal, I think that we in general today have, have, become, have been all too guilty of seeking sermons that, that give me something tangible that I can do to make my life better right now. And <clears throat> we, we get bored with ideas of theology because it just seems too intellectual. But what ends up happening when, when that's what I seek after, instead of seeking after a robust understanding of who God is, is when my faith is pressed. And when I come to horrible trials in my life and difficulties... Where's my hope? Because now those, those shallow things that I sought don't help me anymore. And my hope can only be found in who God is and I don't have a good understanding of who God is. It is essential for us to have a right understanding of who God is because as A.W. Tozer said, we hope in who God is. That is where we find our hope. So then, who is this God of creation and how is it that we can have hope in him? So there are nine things that we're going to talk about from Genesis 1-1. And you might say, wait a minute, there's only 10 words in Genesis 1-1. Where are you getting nine things we can know about God? A lot of these things are implied and then we find them fleshed out in Scripture. That, that these things must be true of God in Genesis 1-1, for Genesis 1-1, to be true. And the rest of Scripture helps us to understand what it really looks like. So, first thing that we see from Genesis 1-1 is that God is triune. God is triune, which means that God exists as Trinity. Now, what that means is that God is one God, existing in three persons, not personalities, Persons, separate persons, fully God, but all making up one God. And you say, wow, that doesn't make any sense. And that's okay that you feel that way because our minds aren't made to fully grasp that because we don't exist as three in one. But, but, be very careful to not say, well, because I can't understand it, I reject it. God has chosen to reveal himself as such and we need to accept that which he reveals. So how do we see the Trinity here in chapter 1? Well, right, we see in verse 1, in the beginning, God. And then in verse 2, 
And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So in the first two verses, you have God and then you have the Spirit of God. But then when we go to the New Testament, you go to John chapter 1 verse 3 or you go to Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 20, we see that Jesus was present at creation. And it even says that it was, that, that creation took place through Jesus. And so if we take that and understand, okay, so Jesus was there at creation too. We look back at Genesis 1-1 and we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were all present in this moment of creation. Now remember I said that we have to be careful to not reject that which we don't fully understand. Because anyone who would say, well, because I don't understand that, I reject it, what they're actually saying is, I only accept that which is lesser than me. Which is to stand as the ultimate authority of all truth. Right? If I don't fully understand it, it's not true. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's foolish. Right? I don't fully understand all the laws of physics, but I accept them to be true because they work, right? How do we apply the doctrine of the Trinity, though? Like it's, it, it sounds neat. <clears throat> it, it kind of confounds us? How do I apply it? Like, what, what does that mean for my daily life? Well, let me suggest that not all doctrines are meant for me to, uh, to put them into practice. But instead, some are meant to build up my faith. The way that I put into practice, the way that I apply the doctrine of the Trinity is that it grows my faith. And here's, here's why. One theologian put it, Such a truth had to be revealed. It could not have been imagined. See, the doctrine of the Trinity, to me, has always affirmed my faith and has always grown me in my faith in, in what the Bible says to be true because if someone was making it up, why on earth would they make up something that the human mind can't fully comprehend? Instead, God said, this is how I exist. And I say, wow, I, I can't fully wrap my mind around that, but that's actually what proves you to be God is that you are greater than my mind can fathom. So, with the fact that God exists as Trinity, we see that God is also independent. Okay? God is independent. See, if God exists within the Trinity, that means he exists within a perfect relationship, that outside of his nature, there is nothing that he needs. But in fact, within his very nature, how he exists, who he is, in and of himself, he has everything that he needs. This means that he's not affected by us in any way. What I think of God and how I live my life does not change who God is. He is not affected by that at all. Paul says in Acts 17 that God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. God is self-sufficient. He is independent. Too often we explain why God created, when, when someone asks, why did God create the world? And we say, well, God, God was lonely and he wanted someone to share his love with, so he made us. That means that God was insufficient and somehow I feel a need that God had? Like, that's very disappointing, honestly. Like, but yet, that's not the case. It's that God created everything for his glory, and he does not need us at all. But instead, he chose to create us. And you see, if God were not self-sufficient, if God were not independent, 
If God needed something from me, then we would be hopeless. When we needed help, when we needed God, what if in that moment he said, well, I need you, so I can't do anything for you because you're not giving me what I need. How hopeless would we be in that moment? But yet, because God is independent, because God is self-sufficient, because he does not need anything from me, but instead within his very nature, he has everything that he needs, I can know that my circumstances don't change who he is. The next thing that we see from Genesis 1-1 is that God is eternal. God is eternal. You see, we see in verse 1 that in the beginning, God was already there. Which means, in the beginning, God created time. Which means that God exists outside of time. Which means that God is not constrained or limited by time. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, From everlasting to everlasting you are God, meaning for eternity future and eternity past you are God. Now, eternity future is hard for us to understand, but at least we can just kind of say, well, I mean, it just never ends, right? Eternity past is very hard for us to wrap our brains around because we all had a beginning. Everything in our world had a beginning. Everything that we know is based on cause and effect and something having a beginning. And so the thought that God never had a beginning, he never had a cause, he has always existed, is hard for us to understand. But yet, it is incredibly important for us to grab hold of. And here's why. I was talking to someone a few weeks ago and she was just explaining just a really hard season of life that her family is in the midst of. And, and she said, I just wish that I could see the end of all of this and know why God was doing it or why God was allowing it to happen. And if I don't understand God as being eternal... If I don't understand God as being outside of time, not affected by time, then my understanding of how God is, is dealing with me in that moment is he's standing there with me like, let's just see what happens. I mean, I, I'm going to try, but let's just see what happens because I'm just right here with you. But if I understand God as being eternal and existing outside of time, then what that means is that God is with me right now. And he is in that moment where it's all done. And he is in every moment along the way. And he is simultaneously in every moment throughout all history right now. And so then that changes how I engage the idea of God bringing me through this time in my life, right? If, if I understand God outside of time and I see myself, you know, there where that banner is and, and God is there with me, but he's also every moment along the way and then he's also here at the end where he's saying, I am leading you through this. I am actively working in every moment along the way. Though you might not see it, I am here and I'm with you and I'm going to lead you to the place where you will know why I'm doing this. See, if God wasn't eternal, if God wasn't eternal, Romans 8.28 could not be true. 
where Paul says, For God works for good in all things for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. If he was not eternal, that could not be true. It would at best have to be a gamble. I hope God's going to work for my good, but I can't know for sure. But if he is eternal, then I can confidently say, God is working for my good because he is already in all of those moments currently working on my behalf for my good. Now, of equal impossibility to fully comprehend as the fact that God is eternal is the fact that God is infinite. God is infinite. Now, to put it in the most basic sense, the fact that God is infinite means that he cannot be measured. He has no limits. There is not a way that we can contain the person of God, but he is outside of any bounds of measurement because he has no limit. Psalm 145 verse 3 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable, which means it has no end. It is infinite. And in the book of Isaiah, it says, Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. Now that sounds neat, that God is infinite. It it at least gives us a good understanding of, of the greatness of God and how big he is, but what does that mean? Why does that matter for us? Well, one of the reasons why is if God is infinite, if God is infinite and his being is made up of attributes that are equal in measure, then all of his attributes are infinite. All of the aspects of his character are infinite. God's love, God's grace, God's mercy, God's kindness, they are all equally infinite. See, when God chooses to set his love on you, there's no limit to it. I can't exhaust the grace of God or somehow outsin the mercy of God because there's no limit to it because he is infinite. No matter what I've done in my life that I somehow think, I, I mean, there's no way God would forgive me of that because I've, I must have run out of forgiveness. At this point, God's saying, my forgiveness for you is infinite because of the work of Jesus. But on the flip side of that, the opposite is also true. God's wrath is infinite. God's justice is infinite. God's righteousness is infinite. So I don't take lightly the things that God will be pouring out his wrath on. The next thing that we see is that God is all-powerful. God is all-powerful. You may, you may have heard this, God is omnipotent. That's another way of saying the same thing. We see throughout the text in Genesis 1 that the way that God went about creating things is that he spoke. He did not put in processes that took millions of years. He spoke things into existence. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And we see throughout the account, and God said, and there was. And God said, and there was. Not, and God said, which started this process. No, and God said, and it was there. 
then in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, By faith we believe that God created that which exists through the word of his power. That creating for God was as effortless as speaking because he is all-powerful. This is the idea that there is nothing that God is powerless to do. If God can create merely by speaking, then that means that there's nothing within his creation that is outside of his control because he's the one who created it. There's nothing, there's nothing within creation that is any more difficult for him than creating itself. Or than the act of creation itself. So what does this mean? Well, since God, since God is all-powerful and there's nothing that he is powerless to do, I can know and have hope in the fact that whatever needs to be done, God will do it. Because he is not limited by the laws of physics or anything in this universe, because he stands in authority over them because he created them. See, all things are equally effortless for him. So here's, here's the question I have to ask, though. Well, if God is powerful to do anything, and that if something needs to be done, he can do it, then why is it that this thing that I think that God needs to do has not been done? I'm sure that we can all think to points in our life where we prayed and prayed for God to do something. And, and we said, God, I know you're powerful enough to do this. Would you please do it? And then it didn't happen. Did God not have the power to do it? Was God powerless to act on our behalf in that moment? No. Because when we understand this in light of the fact that God is infinite, that God is eternal, that God is self-sufficient, when we start looking at the other aspects of who God is, remember we said if God is infinite, that means he's working for our good all the way along the way because he is present all the way through even though we can't know. We can't know what the end is, but he knows what the end is because he's already at the end. Right? If I believe that to be true about God, then I can know that the reason why God didn't act in that moment was because what I was asking for, while it might have been for my immediate good, was not for my ultimate good. And that when God works for the good in all things, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, he's working for the ultimate good. And I can know that if God chooses not to act in the way that I want him to act, I can know that it's because the way that I'm asking for him to act is not for my ultimate good and his glory. And instead I can trust that what he's going to do is going to be better and he's going to bring him more glory. The next thing that we see from Genesis 1 is that God is transcendent. God is transcendent. That's not a word that we use a lot today. And off, unfortunately, too often we use it incorrectly. Transcendent means that you are not like what you're being compared to. The fact that God is transcendent means that he is not like creation, that it is foolish to compare him to something in this world as if it could rightly explain him. Going back to the illustration I used earlier about making a chair, it would be foolish for you to, 
for the person who made the chair to be compared to the chair, right? Instead, the creator must be seen as something different. And it's the same with God. God created the heavens and the earth. He is not like the heavens and the earth. This is the reason why so many times in the Old Testament when people beheld the glory of God, they were undone. This is why the, experiencing the presence of God was overwhelming for people because they instantly came to the realization of the fact God is nothing like anything I have ever understood. I have no frame of reference for how great and incredible he is. They came instantly face to face with their sinfulness as they beheld a level of holiness and righteousness that their brain just could not wrap, get wrapped around. So the fact that God is not like creation means that I should be so slow to compare him to that which I already know and should instead let him tell me who he is. I should let him reveal to me through his word who he is so that I have a right fear of him and a right understanding of him. But lest we think that somehow God being different from creation means that he's distant from creation. We also see in Genesis 1 that God is imminent. Okay, God is imminent. This is the idea that, that God is closely present. We see in verse 2, the end of verse 2, it says, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So we see God is creating, but yet he is also present with his creation. It's not like he is far off and that creation is somehow distant from him and he is distant from creation. But instead, as he's creating, he is there with it. This also means that he's active in it. This is where Jesus said in Matthew 6 that God sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. That when the rain comes, when we look and we see the rain clouds forming, it's not just a random occurrence. God is active in his creation and he is sending the rain. But also I can know that if God is imminent, if God is near, that he's near to me and he's near to you. If he's present in his creation and active within his creation, that means that he is constantly present with us. Whether I feel his presence or not doesn't change the fact that he is present with me. When I feel alone, when I feel scared, when I feel worried, God is with me. God is near. If the psalmist says that God is near to the brokenhearted, it's because God is imminent. God is near. God is right there with you. The next thing that we see from Genesis 1 is that God is unchanging. God is unchanging. So if God is independent, right? if he's self-sufficient, if he's all-powerful, if he's eternal, if he is infinite, that means that he cannot change. He cannot do it. He will not do it. He is unchanging. And here's why. Because if God is all those things and yet changes for any reason, what that means is that at some point he was lacking and needed to change 
in order to be better. Right? That's the only reason that something changes, to alter it, right? The only reason, God obviously wouldn't change himself for the sake of being worse. So he, if, he, if he did change, it would be for the sake of becoming better, which means that at some point he was lacking, which cannot be true of God. He cannot change. He will not change. And we see that throughout the scriptures. Numbers 23, verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. God himself says in Malachi 3, 6, I, the Lord, do not change. And James says in James 1, 17, that with God there is no variation or shifting shadow. Throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament, from beginning to end, God repeats the same truth about himself that he does not change. And if God doesn't change, then we can have the peace and the hope to know that his decrees, his plans, his promises, and his feelings have not changed either. And I know that if you're anything like me, you have gone through times, and perhaps some of you are going through this right now, where you think, God does not love me the way he used to. God does not feel about me the way that he used to. Whether it's your circumstances or your decisions, you feel as though somehow God has changed in the way that he looks at you. And if that's you, or if that has ever been you, I just want you to listen to these words from A.W. Tozer in his book, Knowledge of the Holy. Where he says, What peace it brings to the Christian's heart to realize that our Heavenly Father never differs from himself. In coming to him at any time, we need not wonder whether we shall find him in a receptive mood. He is always receptive to misery and need as well as to love and faith. He does not keep office hours nor set aside periods when he will see no one. Neither does he change his mind about anything. Today, this moment... He feels toward his creatures, toward babies, toward the sick, the fallen, the sinful, exactly as he did when he sent his only begotten son into the world to die for mankind. And if you ever wonder if God has changed in what he thinks about you or how he feels about you or the things that he has promised Regardless of where you have found yourself or what decisions you've made or what roads you went down that you had no business going down and what regrets you have, God looks at you and says, I feel the same way about you I did when I sent my son to die for you. I feel the same way about you that I did when I saved you and I see you in the same light that I saw you when I forgave you of your sins and I clothed you in the righteousness of my son. And what a wonderful truth. What a, what a hope-giving truth it is that God does not change. And the last thing that we see in Genesis 1 is that God is good. 
God is good. Now we have to go through the rest of chapter one to see this, but as you read through, and we're going to read through this in detail next week, but as you read through and you see that God is constantly professing that creation is good. See, verse 10, and God saw that it was good. And verse 12, and God saw that it was good. And verse 18, at the end of 18, and God saw that it was good. And over and over and over again, God says that it was good until verse 31, where it says that God saw that it was very good. Which means it accomplished the purpose that he made it for. The purpose for which he made creation, it met that purpose, and that's why it was good. And and the reason why we can see from that that God himself is good is that God must create out of his own nature. If God created something that was deficient, that was not completely good, that would mean that in some way God himself was deficient. Because he couldn't create something that was completely good. And yet he did. He created something very good. Because he himself is good. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. I can look out the window at the mountains, at the rain, at the stars. I can look at the sun, hopefully not too long, right? But I can see those things and I can say, God is good because what he made is good. And we might look around and say, yeah, but the world is not good right now. Well, we'll get to that in detail in a couple weeks when we talk about Genesis 3. But the quick answer is that's because of sin, because we rebelled against God and brought sin into this world And that is why we look and say that things are not as good as they used to be. Well, that doesn't change the fact that God is good. Remember, God is not affected by our decisions or by our circumstances. He remains good whether or not there is evil in the world because of sin. And so we can look and say, God, no matter what happens, no matter what this world may look like, I can trust that you and your promises and your decrees and your words are good and that you will accomplish the purpose that you have. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians, after talking about how they experienced terrible sufferings, said that we are perplexed, but not unto despair. That while I look around at the world and say, why? Why is this happening? And I am perplexed at the way things are. I don't have to despair because God remains good. And I can trust him. And you see, we learn all of this from Genesis 1. All of these things have to be present in Genesis 1.1. While maybe they're not explicitly stated in that verse, they are implied and the rest of scripture helps us to understand exactly what they look like. But these things are all true of God at the moment that he created. And in fact, they must be. Because our hope is found in who God is. And these are all reasons why we find hope in the God of the Bible. 
See, without, without Genesis 1-1, we have no Bible, we have no gospel, we have no hope. And don't let these truths, don't let these things about God be little facts that you bring up in a Bible study to sound really smart or, or things that you just kind of keep locked away that, to, to bring up every now and then, but let them sink deep within your soul and change the way that you view God. That you would have a right understanding of him. That we would rightly understand who God is so that we can worship him. So that we can follow him. So that we can be on mission for his glory. Because we have a right understanding of who he is. And I can't think of any better uh, illustration of the hope that we have in God than than communion. And so as you see the tables out, we're going to take communion here in a minute. But right, the, the God of the universe who when sin entered the world didn't abandon his people, didn't abandon his creation, but instead said, I will make provision for you and send my son to die for your sins that you can be forgiven. There is no greater picture of hope than that. And we can know that it's because of who God is that we can have hope in what Jesus did on the cross. And so here at Faith Church, we practice open communion, which means if you profess faith in Jesus, then you are free to come and partake in communion with us. We have a gluten-free option up front if you need that. But I would say this, if you have not put your faith in Jesus... And you, and, and, and you have ever found yourself wondering where your hope is. Wondering who God is and if he cares anything about you. Right? Know that the God of the Bible is the God of hope. And that through Jesus' death and resurrection, God offers you forgiveness and eternal life. And if we will just come to the place where we say, God... I believe in your son. I believe he died for my sins. Please forgive me and please help me just to live my life for you. Then God welcomes us into his arms and gives us the greatest hope we could ever have. So if that's you and today you pray that, then come forward and participate in communion with us. Uh, but with that, uh, please go ahead and come forward uh, and uh, the, the outer aisles go to the back and then the middle come forward to these tables, and then we'll take the elements together.